Hello and welcome to another episode of National Review's Capital Record. We uh, get deeper into the point at which uh, 2023 will be no more. And we want to try to finish as strong as we can. And I'm very confident that today is going to be one of those. Um, it's sort of in line with a lot of what the vision was when we first started this Capital Record podcast. I really love to have people in business, entrepreneurs, people particularly with um, a lot of experience and expertise in a given sector that can come on and, and share something uh, that does translate into uh, our broader vision um, about better understanding economics, better understanding the impact of policy, better understanding cultural ramifications in an economy. And I think all these things are just sort of uh, valuable insights in, in one's pursuit of defending the free society. And today, that guest is a gentleman by the name of Stephen Dubb. Um, he uh, is the principal at Beechwood Homes, a uh, home builder based out of Long Island, New York. Uh, over 40 years, has built over 10,000 homes across different segments of the home building marketplace. Very experienced, very intelligent. And I think some insights that we're going to get into on what's going on in, in the challenges for building new housing supply. Uh, that will really be uh, helpful for us. I also think that they're not necessarily perfectly in line with all the narratives. Now, they don't fully contradict the narratives, but I think they add more color. And, and that's why I think this is going to be an insightful talk. So with that said, let me bring on Stephen Dubb. He'll tell you more about himself, and then we'll get into it. So with that said, allow me to welcome another first-time guest to National Review's Capital Record, uh, with uh, focus today, as we've done a couple other times this year with different guests, really wanting to delve in the subject of housing, let me welcome special guest Stephen Dubb. Stephen, welcome to Capital Record. Thanks for having me, David. I'm excited. I think, as we always love to do with first-time guests, it may be useful uh, for you to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. They, they know you're on to talk about housing and the housing market. Um, but maybe give a little background about your story. Sure. Yeah. I'm um, a principal with the Beachwood organization. Beachwood's based in uh, Long Island, in New York. Uh, and we're primarily a home builder, though we develop other types of real estate. Uh, we've been in business since 1985. Uh, and we've built over 10,000 homes across Nassau and Suffolk County on Long Island uh, and in Queens, Brooklyn, Bronx, in New York City, upstate. New York, and now we're building in North Carolina as well. The types of housing that we've built uh, and continue to build range from affordable housing, both for sale and rental, um, to what I would call ultra-luxury housing. We're talking homes that are in the 7 to $10 million range. But the bread and butter of what we build is probably priced anywhere between 500000 to a little over a million dollars. And so has Beachwood, did it originally start as a single family residence builder? Is, has that been kind of the focus from the beginning? Yeah. So my dad started the company in 1985. He uh, is not formally, he's not college educated. He had a landscaping business and a condominium management business. And, and in the process of managing condos that were partially built, partially occupied by other builders uh, and had construction issues, he was forced to sort of reverse engineer and value engineer some of these problematic homes. And, um, and one of those condos that he was managing, 
he'd report back to the construction lender who also happened to be his his banker and friend and that that banker said to him you sound like you know what you're talking about when it comes to building houses if you ever find a piece of land that you think you can make money on let me know and um and the bank can do a joint venture with you the bank will put up the money you'll build the houses and you guys can split the profits that was back in the mid 80s when banks were allowed to do joint ventures it's no longer the case but that's how he got his start but was that was that bank a, a considered kind of a small community or, or a regional bank yeah I, I believe it was called reliance savings bank so it was a small local bank and so that was back in the days when banks could uh could be a little more community minded, a little more entrepreneurial and not dealing with 470 regulators and capital restrictions and whatnot. Exactly. That, that was pre savings and loan. And, and there have been tons and tons of uh, regulations passed since that have made that type of arrangement impossible. Um, and, you know, it's interesting to think I, I, the way he got his start. I'm not sure a guy like him could could make it these days. It's, it's just a different world. Did that bank make money on their uh, deal? Oh yeah, absolutely. They they did a, a couple of those deals until I think the late eighties and early nineties when when it no longer became possible. I think there were one or two real estate crashes in there. Um, that first project that my dad built was sixty nine condominium townhomes out on Long Island. Uh, during one of those real estate crashes, as work dried up on the island. He gravitated into the boroughs to build affordable housing because the New York City Housing Partnership, which was a not-for-profit housing developer, um, was auctioning land to builders that was owned by the city. And, um, and the only condition to building the housing was that you had to sell it at affordable prices and it had to be, uh, I think it was price constrained for 10 years. And so they started building affordable housing in the outer boroughs when the market rate uh, uh, world was tough. And so they sort of developed two arms of the business, building market rate housing out on Long Island and affordable housing in the boroughs, um, and, and really grew the business that way. Um, both arms, uh, you know, through the 2000s and, and then the market crash. And I would say coming out of the Great Recession, we've become a bit more of a diversified business. We've started building some rental housing. Uh, we've bought industrial buildings, hotels, et cetera, uh, because the home building business during the Great Recession was a, a brutal business. In our business, if you're not closing homes, you've got no money coming in. And um, and that was a tough couple of years. And we were looking at other more diversified developers and said to ourselves, it'd sure be nice to have some some rent coming in each month, no matter what's going on in the housing market. Well, you know, you know, it's a little different than what I um, want to get into right now, but I'm actually really curious in that 2008 moment you referred to, was the bigger problem for a builder like you guys that there was no money coming in because there were no new houses to build or that you had built a bunch and couldn't move them. Were you sitting on a lot of land acquisition that was now dead capital or even depreciated value? Or was it more just simply that there was no uh, revenue stream of new homes to build? So, so for us, it was more the latter. We, we as a philosophy don't build a ton of spec housing. Sometimes we're forced to. Um, so, so I'd say we probably entered the recession with a little bit more spec housing than, than we would have liked, but nothing like what most national or public builders were dealing with elsewhere in the country. Um, and I'd say for us in, in the Long Island market, it's so supply constrained for reasons that we'll probably talk about that we were able to continue selling housing without dropping prices, but we had to basically take a 50% haircut in absorption. Um, and so projects that should have taken two or three years ended up taking six or seven years. 
And and so uh, that's a distinction between a more boutique builder like you guys that had a, a certain philosophy. Your risk exposures were defined a little differently. Where the Nationals, um, the Lenars and Toll Brothers, they were building a lot of spec. Therefore, were caught in that moment cyclically uh, with a lot of capital exposure and then also a lot of land that presumably couldn't be developed profitably. Uh, your your guys' case, you lose uh, the avenue of cash flow, which is what a home builder like you lived off of. But that's right. But and, and one point to make coming out of the recession that's, that's really affected our business, and I think it's affected all builders across the country, um, you see this massive undersupply in housing across the country these days, and, and we continue to not build enough housing for, for household formation every year. And I can tell you from my experience that lending in the banking industry, lending to home building projects, for sale condos or, or just single family homes, um, was almost like a four letter word um, until COVID hit. And, and suddenly for sale housing became in vogue and, and um, the spigots opened up from the banking industry. But it was brutally hard for like 10 years to capitalize a project. And, um, and, and so we took our banking relationships very, very seriously because it just wasn't easy to find lenders. And so uh, that kind of maybe cues us up a little on um, what we want to talk about the state of housing now and the state of housing supply now. Is it fair to say, um, I, I really appreciate the kind of background here, did post-financial crisis conditions lead to the supply limitations we have now? Because regardless of what we're building in 2022-23, a lot of the problem is we underbuilt from 2011 to 2019. And so it, it just created the conditions of supply drought that we're dealing with now. Yeah, I, I, I think in large part, it's responsible for it. The what I what I talked about, sort of the attitude of the banking industry, and I'm not sure exactly how much of that was forced by regulators or how much of it was just we got burned by touching the pot in the Great Recession, and and we're not going to do that again. Um, the lack of available capital and and just the recent memory of how difficult, how bad the housing market was, I think made it hard to build a lot of for sale housing. Um, and and then you look at Builders overall, who I think are still skittish about taking a lot of risks or taking massive risks, just remembering how difficult it was for those few years. So I, I think some of it might be true regulation. Um, some of it might be that you know, you've got uh, a couple of very big banks that do a ton of the home building lending around the country, uh, as opposed to the environment before the, the GFC, where there were a lot of smaller banks. Um, and those few big banks were... were a little skittish on lending a lot in the in the home building world. Um, you know, I'm not sure exactly what it is, but uh, but I, I would say the GFC probably informed a lot of of the housing deficit that we're dealing with now. When Patricia tried to donate to a conservative organization through her donor advised fund, her request was denied. Why? Because they said she was trying to give to a hate group. That's why she switched to Waterstone, a donor-advised fund dedicated to upholding Judeo-Christian values. Waterstone is unique in the world of donor-advised funds. It accepts gifts of cash as well as real estate, business interest, oil, and more. 
They can help you receive an immediate tax deduction and make a difference for the charity of your choosing. With its charitable pooled trust, you can even generate a guaranteed income stream from your charitable giving. Waterstone strictly adheres to a Christian statement of faith, including a pro-life declaration, does not give to charities that contradict those values. Waterstone is trusted by so many men and women a conviction that they give $10 million per month in charitable grants. They can work with you or your financial advisor to make a giving strategy that fits your needs. Contact Waterstone's Giving Strategies team today for more information by visiting waterstone.org. That's waterstone.org. So then coming out of the financial crisis, um, would you say that the biggest hindrance to getting new homes built was regulatory or was it just market conditions that the builders weren't in a position to take the risk and that supply-demand imbalance caused a market decision not to build um, or or was was it also related to access to capital? That that's what I'm trying to figure out. Yeah, I think it's I, I think it's probably impossible to to say exactly how much is attributable attributable to uh, any of those. I, I can tell you that there seemed to be a hangover from the the GFC on the banking side, and and there was this consolidation within banking. So um, there were a lot fewer lenders available, a lot fewer lenders willing to lend on home building. And I don't know if that was um, sort of a cautiousness on their part that came, that, j- that just was sort of, you know, derived from their experience in the GFC, um, or if it was coming from regulators, uh, it's impossible for me to know. Uh, and I think on builders' parts, there, there was a real hesitancy to take the kind of risks um, and believe that things were as good as they were coming out of the GFC, because we had all gone through such a terrible experience. So, uh, you know, I, I think I feel confident saying in large part, you know, there, there's you know, regulation that's responsible for this. I think, I think it's also fair to say in large part, it's just people's attitudes and, and that sort of hangover having gotten burned and gone through that terrible experience. It, um, it would seem to me that the issue of capital post-crisis, um, what, what must have been a significant one, where exactly what percentage of the problem comes down to capital constraint is, is unanswerable. But I also get the impression that right now there's a big criticism of um, private equity coming into the single-family residence world and that the criticism is that they can come in, buy a bunch of homes, and it becomes um, more uh, unaffordable. But is the capital that private markets have provided into the housing space, capital that was previously not there, and are we possibly looking at that the wrong way? Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that because I can tell you just anecdotally from my experience, whenever I spoke to private equity funds about home building developments you know, over the last 10 years, I'm, but, but pre-COVID, they wanted almost nothing to do with it. Not for a not for a good deal. I mean, there were examples where private equity got involved in home building, um, uh, but they were you know really sort of vulture deals that that you know the, the returns were so good that they couldn't ignore them. Um, and then you know starting around COVID and, and and maybe a few years before it, you started to see a lot of private equity get involved in the single family rental and build for rent business. Um, and I think generally that's a good thing. That there, I know in the southeast right now. 
there's almost an oversupply of rental housing that's been built and, and that's still under construction. And so you're seeing rents drop nationally. Um, so I don't see how that's not a good thing for renters who are worried about the cost of, of housing. Uh, I, you know, I understand the criticism, but I think that's, that's uh, looking at the tree and, and not zooming out and seeing the whole forest. And so right now you fast forward to a post-COVID world. You're a, uh, a Long Island-based home builder with nearly 40 years of experience in the business, the company built, having built over 10,000 homes. And we uh, nationally hear over and over again that one of the biggest issues is inadequate inventory. Um, and mm-hmm. I would think that for someone in the business of building homes in a time when they say, oh my gosh, we need more homes built, that this must be a really good period of time. Um, And yet we are also hearing that those homes that need to be built are not being built. uh, I'm I'm a pretty studied economist, and generally when there's demand and inadequate supply, what comes next is supply. (laughs) So tell me what uh, the world is missing here from your uh, vantage point. So b- before I answer that question, let me say one more thing on the on the build for rent criticism, because I, th- I think it somewhat uh, applies to the conversation we're having today, which is which is that it really no longer pencils for private equity funds to to build single family rental communities for two reasons: interest rates have gone up, driving up cap rates. The returns aren't there; they're not suitable to hit you know the, the return thresholds that private equity needs. Um, another reason that the returns aren't there is because insurance has gotten so expensive over the last two years. And so when I've talked to build for rent developers, uh, the complaints that I'm hearing are, we can't get this to pencil. Uh, you know, insurance, the insurance quotes that we got took a point off of our yield to cost. It doesn't work anymore. You know, the people who say go or don't go at my fund are saying don't go. Um, and, and I've spoken to you know, market analysis companies in the Southeast where a lot of this build for rent housing was, was, was being built who've told me that they said to their employees plan on doing 10% of our market studies for, for build for rent housing this year, as opposed to the 90% that we were doing last year. Um, so I think that wave has hit and it's going to recede and, and maybe market conditions will, will settle such that it's appropriate to build more of that housing again. But I think you're, you're going to see, I think that conversation is going to fade for the next couple of years. Um, as for, for your question, about uh, why things are not so great for a housing developer in a world where there's this massive lack of supply of housing is it's just not that simple for us to be able to build more housing, especially not here in New York. I can speak to New York City and I can speak to what it's like in Nassau and Suffolk County. Nassau and Suffolk County, I think, have over 200 individual municipalities within them and most of those municipalities have zoning control. Meaning if you wanna build a project, a housing development, You've got to go through that individual, that governing municipalities, zoning board, their planning board, or their town council. And those people are usually elected officials, and they're beholden to their voters. Uh, and there is a lot of well-organized nimbyism out there. It's far easier to kill a project than it is to get one approved. You usually get a very, very vocal, opposed minority when you propose a project, um, who now find it extremely easy or relatively easy to organize um, more efficiently on Facebook, 
or other forms of social media than they did 30 years ago when organizing opposition involved spending money on sending out mailers and uh, gathering people in physical locations, et cetera. Um, and they feel very strongly usually about their opposition to a project where the wider public who would be in favor of more housing being built because maybe their child or grandchild would be able to afford to move in there. Maybe they want to move into a townhouse community because they've been stuck in a single family home for 30 years and they're getting older and they don't want to deal with the maintenance anymore. Most of those people who, who are in support, they're sort of quietly in support and, and they're not as passionate about it as the opposition is, and they're going about their lives. They're not organizing on Facebook. Um, but it's easy to it's easy to scare an elected official if 20 people show up to a town board meeting that's viewed as a riot uh, oftentimes in these small municipalities. Um, and so I think that these vocal opponents wield uh, outsized influence in, in when they show up and oppose projects. And... Um, you know, I think we hear complaints on Long Island that are probably true nationally. We hear complaints about traffic, chiefly, overloading school districts with school children, um, uh, environmental complaints like this will ruin the, the water supply, et cetera. Uh, and then, you know, every, every once in a while I'll hear we're building housing that's going to that's gonna house migrants who are coming from Mexico. Uh, you know, it's, it's like everything else the the misinformation out there is, is awful, but it's contagious. Um, and, and again, on that, envir on that environmental point, it, on that environmental point, Stephen, is it, um, people will say it anecdotally in their sort of neighborly nimbiest critique, or is some of it regulatory? Is there an environmental impediment from CEQA, from, from regulatory, uh, that is codified? Um, is it become more expensive to build because of some of the environmental requirements or is it mostly neighborly um, excuse making? Uh, like everything in housing, it's all of the above. So, um, so the, the truth is new development is almost always better for the environment from a water quality point of view than a lot of the existing housing stock is that's been, been around for decades. If we build a, a dense enough development, a townhouse development, we're required to build uh, an individualized sewage treatment plant on the site of that development that treats the, the sewage flow from all of the houses that we build. The standards for building a sewage treatment plant are such that the, the effluent that comes out of that plant after the, the sewage has been treated is supposed to be water that's clean enough for a person to be able to drink. That's far better for the environment for going into the ground and then seeping into uh, aqu aquifers or into our bays or, or our ocean, that's far better than what comes out of a septic system, which is heavily loaded with nitrogen and, and causes algae blooms that are a problem sort of endemic to, to the Long Island area and to the Northeast. Um, the, I think it's convenient, it's convenient for opposition to ignore that when it's explained to them and, and, and they like to. And then, you know, you encounter this like, I'll get to the secret in a second, but you encounter this phenomenon where you can, we can hire scientists and experts in traffic, uh, school impacts, uh, water impacts, sewage impacts, cultural impacts, et cetera, archeological impacts. And we do because of secret, we're forced to do that. Uh, most of the opposition after hearing their testimony will say, I don't care what they say. I, I know what's, I know what it's gonna be because I know in my gut and I know what I see with my own eyes. Um, and, and that's very frustrating for us because there's just this, 
you know, what can you do in the face of that? There, I don't know how you fight that. Secra in New York State, and I think there's a similar, um, similar, similar regulation in California that I've heard about. Requires us if we're if if it's a large enough project, we've got to put together what's usually a 700-page environmental study on a project. So that means I'm hiring, as I mentioned, scientists to study water impacts, sewage impacts, traffic impacts, school impacts, uh, economic impacts, et cetera. And they put together this document. And usually it'll cost us between, I'm going to say 400000 and a million dollars, depending on on how big of a project it is. And that's, that's of course, a it's a, it's a time delay because it takes time to put that together. It takes time for a municipality to hire their own consultants to review it. Um, more importantly, that's a cost that has to get passed on to our buyers or our renters, and that's true of every developer out there. Um, so, there so there's certainly time delays because of that and, and cost increases. So is that called an EIR in New York, or is that a California nomenclature? Uh, that's California, but it's close to New York. It's an environmental impact statement, an EIS in, in New York. Okay. Well, they're very creative how they mix that up. Um, mm -hmm. I'm going to go out on a limb and 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 posit a theory here about your North Carolina business. But if I'm wrong, then tell me. Um, so I uh, have a house out in East Hampton, which is technically Long Island, would be one of the most nimby oriented cultures in the country in the villages that are the Hamptons, but it tends to be a left-wing nimbyism. And I uh, have lived much of my adult life and have a house here in Newport Beach where I happen to be sitting right now in California, which I think would be one of the most nimbyest cities in the country, but right-wing. So two nimby mentalities that are opposed to the construction of new homes but for an, out of an entirely different political ecosystem. Is part of your business incentive to building in North Carolina that you encounter less nimbyism? A hundred percent. It is by far a more builder-friendly and business-friendly environment than New York is for a lot of reasons. And, and we've been there for, I think, three years now. Our experience has been what we expected, which is for the, for the most part, it, it, has been, uh, it has been lovely. It's a breath of fresh air compared with what building in New York is like. Um, and, and, and we plan to do a lot more of it. The, that's not to say that there, there aren't impediments to development in North Carolina. They are, there are. They're dealing with, we're in the Charlotte area. A lot of the same pressures of, of fast growth that New York has been dealing with for decades. And so you're starting to see a lot of the same issues creep in. In, in um, Union County, which is south of Charlotte, where we're building a single family home community, there's not enough sewer capacity currently. And so there, it, it's become very difficult to build more single family housing because of lack of available sewer capacity. Union County is a pretty red uh, county, but I'd say that that pretty right-leaning county has become somewhat anti-development because of the pace of uh, because of how much housing has been built around there. And so there's there seems to be very little political will to build more sewer capacity because it's a convenient situation that they're in where there's not enough sewer capacity for more development. And so you've seen some, some right-leaning people uh, come out against development or come out against increasing sewer capacity because they don't want their area to change. And, and I think while, while North Carolina is far more friendly from a, from a business environment point of view, it's also been my experience, 
like what we've gone through in Union County, that the politics at a local level gets scrambled and they don't necessarily line up the way you would expect them to, where left-leaning communities would be uh, you know, less pro-development and right-leaning communities would be more pro-development. I'll, I'll give you an example. We have an 815-unit community that we got approved in Chapel Hill in two years. The uh, town council in Chapel Hill has been dealing with a problem, which is housing affordability. Um, a lot of middle-class Chapel Hill uh, residents have been forced out because of how expensive housing's gotten. And, and the town council hired not one, but two separate housing consultants to study the problem. They gave them the same answer, which is you need to be building 400 homes a year to keep pace with population growth, or you'll become like Silicon Valley. And that's a very left-leaning town, but they genuinely don't want to become unaffordable to, to regular Americans. And so they embraced that and said, okay, we're going to build 400 houses a year and went from being a town that was pretty anti-development, pretty difficult to do things in, uh, to a town that's somewhat pro-development with, within the, the range of, you know, their sort of value system and levels of affordable housing and energy efficiency and, and, and all that stuff. But, um, uh, just by comparison, there's a right leaning town here in long Island that we got a 750 unit project approved. And that took us seven and a half years. And that town thought that, that, that was lightning speed for them. So it doesn't necessarily fall along political lines. So I want, I want those um, who are listening to this that are themselves entrepreneurial but not in the home building world to think about that so they can empathize with what you and your, your family-run business deal with. You're talking about going down the line through a process that you ended up prevailing in after seven and a half years. Um, and that wasn't to the final point of sale and construction, right? That was just to get ready to put shovels in the ground. Well, that was, yeah, correct. That, that so was to start the project. How many businesses out there, what was your revenue stream for those homes you were trying to get built in the seven and a half years you were working on these permissions and entitlements? <laughs> I, I, from those homes. Otherwise? No, no, not oh, otherwise. Um, from that project. You had no revenue, I'm correct? Say correct. Zero. So, so how many entrepreneurs out there could go seven and a half years on something with absolutely no revenue and no certainty of prevailing just to get to the point of then being able to start the process that will actually generate revenue? I mean, it just strikes me as surreal that we expect home builders to take risk to build new capital stock of something that there is a need for in the marketplace and that there could be a seven and a half year delay to bring it to market. I, I don't understand um, why there isn't more awareness of what the entrepreneurial impediments are to getting new capital stock built. Yeah. And I, and I can tell you in terms of raising capital, I could never have gone to a private equity fund and said, hey, we're going to get this great entitlement done, but I don't know if it's going to take us three years or if it's going to take us eight years. It, it just doesn't work. Yeah. And and so it's, it's difficult to raise capital for. It's difficult to do economic calculation to price your own risk and reward trade-off. Um, and, and then you're fighting uphill against a cultural force of nimbyism, a regulatory force of environmental constraint, 
Um, and then maybe talk to me a little bit about zoning. Is that as big of an issue in Long Island as it is in California? So, so there's been a push actually on, on Governor Hochul's part to, um, to pass these ADU laws in, in New York, essentially allow an accessory development unit in, in a single family home area. I can tell you personally, it sounds like a good idea to me, but I don't live, I live in New York City. I don't live in Long Island right now. Um, when I speak to Long Islanders who live in single family home communities, they're almost always against it. Um, you know, I can't, I, I understand local determination. And so I, you know, I'm sympathetic with both sides of the argument. Uh, I, I would say, you know, you, the, I don't know how this problem gets solved in, in New York. I can't speak to other municipalities. Um, in fact, the, the truth is, I don't think it ever gets solved in New York until there's a crisis, un until there needs to be more housing built in order to meet municipal and county budgets uh, or state budgets. I just don't see attitudes changing. People moved out to Long Island because they want a certain type of lifestyle and the, and the ones who really care about that, they fight very hard to keep it that way. Um, you know, I, I sometimes you know, to go to conferences and speak on panels about this and, and you know, my other developers will try to sound an optimistic tone on, on how New York is going to turn around or Long Island is going to turn around its housing supply issue. And you know, with the structure of 200 individual municipalities and all this local determination, I really don't see it. I don't see it happening. What I think will happen is market forces will, will step in. And housing is, will continue to be unaffordable in New York, and people are going to have to go vote with their feet and, and look for greener pastures elsewhere. And as a business, that's what we've been forced to do. That's why we ended up uh, down in North Carolina, uh, you know, looking for a, sort of greener pastures and a, and a bright new world. I, I, I realize that, you know, may not be the answer that you're looking for, but it's the way I see things having been in this business for 15 years and seen this play out all over, all over New York. Well, it's, it's not a, an answer that I'm looking for or not looking for. It's, um, it's what your answer is. And that's all we're trying to get to is a sort of fact, you know, discovery, uh, in different contexts. I think that, um, some of the universal themes I see when I talk to home builders around the country and just in terms of the macroeconomic analysis that I do at my firm, they're, they're reasonably universal. Um, I think NIMBYism has become a reasonably universal force with a significant amount of concentration in, in more affluent pockets. And there's a certain sociology, but like I said, it isn't always political. I mean, Newport Beach, as far as I'm concerned, is right-wing NIMBYism and places like Santa Monica, California, or, or the Hamptons are, are more left-wing NIMBYist, but it still comes from the same place. But the, the CEQA and environmental requirements seem to be much more universal, um, although probably in more suburban and urban markets. And some of the other factors that you're bringing up are, are going to be more local. And, and I think it's an important thing for someone like myself who's on the political right. Um, there is a tendency to want to assume that all problems are all things that are not going the way we want them to go. It must be from some government impediment. And in this case, I think what you're describing, there's plenty of government impediments going on. But there's also certain cultural dynamics that we have to understand in democratic society. It doesn't mean they're good. It doesn't mean they're right, but 
they are different than just merely blaming everything on some inefficient bureaucrat, although I'm, I'm sure there's plenty to blame on inefficient bureaucrats as well. Is, is high density um, a, a competitor for you? Um, that wh What are your thoughts on the uh, movement against building more high density homes or, or, the, or the idea of building high density as a way of solving for more housing supply? It takes up less of a footprint, but gets more homes built. Uh, the appetite for it in Southern California could best be described as the appetite I had for lima beans when I was a kid. Um, but uh, are things different in some of the markets you're building in? No, I, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say it's different uh, in any of the suburban markets that we're building in. I, you know, the boroughs, of New York City, urban places. I think attitudes are a little bit different. Uh, although surprisingly, sometimes you hear the same complaints about traffic and overloading transit systems that that you do in the suburbs. Um, I, I think it's I think density is the answer. Uh, that doesn't mean it's it's going to happen for for all the reasons you say. And I think you you pointed out pretty eloquently what the problem is. It's not necessarily just that it's regulation, but but regardless of somebody's political attitudes, you're just dealing with cultural issues, individual localized issues that, um, that are impediments to development. Uh, on the secret side, you know, I, I, I don't know how to sort of categorize this because it's part of secret, but it's part of any approval process that we go to go through. In some ways, our industry is one of the most heavy, heavily regulated industries that, that I can think of. In order for us to get a project approved, uh, I mentioned earlier, we have to deal with a planning board, a zoning board, a town council, an architectural review board, a building department, a fire department, a fire marshal's office, um, uh, oftentimes school districts, departments of transportation, DPW, uh, you know, the, the hoops that we have to jump, jump through, the bureaucratic hoops, uh, are, are enormous and expensive and time consuming and difficult. Uh, and so not anybody can walk in off the street and just decide that they're going to build a, build a community or build density. So I'd be remiss if I didn't, uh, if, if I didn't mention that. And then when we're going through the process of actually constructing, um, we are dealing with building inspectors, fire marshals, uh, uh, OSHA, fire departments, um, state officials sometimes, depending on the type of housing. And so, uh, who have their own sets of rules, practices, et cetera, that we have to adhere to. So it's really, um, it's just become a very, very complicated business. Uh, I, I also want to talk about what has made New York, from a regulatory point of view, so difficult. Forget local towns and populations not wanting development. Housing affordability is a crisis in New York. Um, New York decided the Albanese decided the way to solve housing affordability issues is to regulate prices. So uh, in whatever way they can, they can, they can do it. So in 2019, um, the state passed these rent regulation laws, suite of laws. I'll give you examples, big and small. For us, we own some luxury rental housing. The law said that you can't require more than a month's security deposit from a prospective renter. So what we used to do when a, a prospective renter didn't quite meet our income or credit score requirements is, or they were a foreigner who didn't have a credit score and, or we couldn't do a background check. We would say, okay, you know, to compensate for the risk, let's take two months security or three months security even, and, and we can sign a lease with that renter. Now we're not allowed to do that, which means we have to turn those renters away 
if we're not willing to accept the risk. And so I think that makes it harder for people without great credit or great income who otherwise might have found a way to, to live in quality housing to find that quality housing. It's reduced the amount of options for them. Uh, what we What's emerged is a, a cottage industry of insurers who we can send prospective renters to who don't meet our standards. There are companies called guarantors and insurance. Those companies will meet with an individual, assess the risk, and basically insure the rent to us, the landlord. But they get paid a couple hundred bucks a month, sometimes much more than a couple hundred bucks a month to insure a renter um, uh, in order to do that. And so that's essentially made renting more expensive for, for those marginal renters. Um, for rent-stabilized and rent-controlled apartments, which we don't own, so we haven't gone through this experience, the state law made it so that you can't earn a reasonable return on invested capital that you put into a rent-stabilized or rent-controlled apartment. So let's say there's, um, I don't know, an appliance that breaks. Prior to 2019, the law said that you could, I forget exactly what the formula was, but it was a decent enough return on replacing that appliance that landlords were incentivized to do it. Uh, the 2019 laws lowered those returns such that it doesn't make sense for landlords to put money into their properties anymore. Um, and so instead, sometimes instead of repairing an apartment, landlords will take those apartments off the market because it makes more economic sense for them to not lease that apartment than it does for them to lease it and, and put that additional capital that's needed into it. Same applies for building-wide improvements like a boiler or lobbies, uh, heating, et cetera. Um, and the effect of those laws has actually been to pull thousands, I think tens of thousands of rent regulated apartments off the market in New York, in New York. So that's an example of legislation that was well intended, but had the opposite effect of, of, of what the intention was. They are now threatening in New York to pass something called good cause eviction, um, which is a, a nice way of saying statewide rent control. And that'll apply to apartments that are market rate and apartments that are rent regulated. Um, the, the thrust of it, the good cause eviction laws say, if a rent uh, increase, an annual rent increase to a tenant is more than 3% or 5%, whatever, it, the law hasn't been passed yet, although they've tried the last several years. Um, if it's higher than that threshold, it's considered unconscionable and the tenant can bring the landlord to court for the judge to decide whether that rent increase should be allowed or not. Landlords are not going to bring. And so again, it just. Court. Sorry, go ahead. Well, it just it just sounds like what you're describing is one series of of unintended consequences after another in their attempt to try to um, address what they perceive to be a problem. They're making something significantly worse. Absolutely. Uh, if the if the good cause eviction laws get passed. And, and in a way, they've chilled the market already because as a developer, I don't know if I should be building rental housing now in New York or not, because I don't know if these laws are going to pass. But if they pass, I think it's going to put a total stop to construction of new apartments in, in New York, because if you're a developer who's got the ability to invest in New York or North Carolina, why would you invest in New York when, when your rent increases are going to be capped at 3%? I, I'd much rather go to North Carolina where... I'll be able to, I know I'll, I won't be limited in my upside. Let, let, let me kind of summarize a, a little bit here. I mean, first of all, Stephen, I really appreciate you taking this time to walk through all of this. You, you've been very clear and, and concise, and I think it's really helpful for, for people not in your business to understand what you're saying, to get an idea for it. 
And there's a number of different categories that, that have been discussed. The environmental, I think those related to capital, access to capital are, are pretty clear, but it, you've helped paint the picture of what that cultural dynamic is. And then I think this final point about some of these unintended consequences, I think it's an important principle in all of economics, not merely what you experience in home building, but then a lot of interventions um, you know, I wrote my book title, uh, borrowed from a paper from Milton Friedman, There's No Free Lunch. We can think we're helping people get access to housing by limiting what security deposit people can charge. But in reality, what we might be doing is making it much harder for them to get housing, that there's an un unintended consequence because there are trade-offs. And and uh, I think that's really a huge element of what I hope listeners understand is that the home building world is filled with trade-offs and it's filled with policymakers that don't seem to understand trade-offs. Absolutely. Well, let me uh, keep my promise to, to uh, respect your time here and let, and let you go. I think you've given us a lot to chew on. Um, I wish you all the best, both in your North Carolina builds, but also in, in Long Island. And uh, hopefully you guys will have the sense to stay out of California where uh, it really, where common sense really goes to die. But um, thanks so much, Stephen. Uh, my best to you and, and Michael, your, your father and, and everyone at Beachwood. And uh, thank you for taking the time to talk to National Review today. Thanks, David. This was fun. Well, we will leave it there. I enjoyed the conversation immensely. The summary of those takeaways, I think, um, I tried to sort of give near the end there. Uh, the, the narrative that there's a lot of problems in public policy hurting the pursuit of greater housing is not untrue. Um, there are uh, regulatory policies in the banking system that have limited the flow of capital. And as you heard from Stephen, his father, Michael, would not have been able to get in the business it, with the capital restrictions that we have in the banking system today. The entire um, notion of what existed in the 80s in capital markets going away has been a total game changer. And there's all sorts of different ramifications of what uh, various regulatory elements of, of capital since the GFC have meant to home building. But when you hear him talk about this alphabet soup of regulatory issues, it's a major part of the story. And it's a major part of disincentives to entrepreneurs to go in. Even if you're going to prevail with your report here and your regulation there and your approvals there and the years and years that go by, there are just so many people that can't and won't go through it all. And then um, the biggest takeaway, I think, of all he's shared is the reality of the culture of, of people <clears throat> that will help keep new housing from getting built as they go fight over this, fight over that, um, and, and sort of with 20 people commandeer a city council. Uh, I think all of us who have been blessed or cursed enough to spend any time in such things know that what he's saying is true, that there can be enough noise in a community that it keeps good things from happening. It's called nimbyism, and it's not always the government's fault. And it's something that we need to understand as a big element happening with housing right now. And then finally, that unintended consequence principle, carry it with you wherever you go. Remember it wherever you go. It's not just housing. Uh, sometimes the things that are done to help create other problems. 
and people who do not make the effort to see that. Uh, I talked about as an example with Orrin Cass, where he said they wanted to for force new regulation that if a company that was backed by private equity went under, that um, that uh, laborers would get like six months of severance before the debt holders were paid back. And it all sounds great, you know, we're going to get this great generous severance out there and yet uh, and help workers um, who happen to be working for a company that is not solvent and are not able to make it. And yet, what of course it misses is how many companies now won't get debt financing that they otherwise need to turn around because of this restriction, or it comes at a bigger cost. It comes at a bigger cost that means less wages, less wage growth, less benefits, less hiring. So it just doesn't think through the whole picture. And I think that's what Stephen was referring to there with some of these well-intentioned ideas. It starts with good intentions, but it creates less options. It creates higher cost. And when all said and done, you get less of what you were trying to, or intending to do. Uh, all those stories and more playing out in housing. Stephen had great insights, grateful for his time, grateful for your time and support to listen to National Review's Capital Record. We'll be back with you next week. Thanks so much for listening to Capital Record.